We've been studying parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke for two months. And today we come to our eighth parable. It is so-called the parable of an unworthy servant. As you, you will see, the idea seems very straightforward and simple. Serving Almighty God is the most commonsensical duty of everyone, just as any servant serves their master. But there is a very critical meaning in this parable that we need to reckon with. So in order to fully appreciate the critical, important meaning of this seemingly simple parable, I need to approach today's study with a well-known biblical metaphor of a life as a journey. We often say life is a journey. It's true. Life has a journey as a beginning and end. Life has a birth and death. There's a beginning and end. And the scripture describes life as a walk with God. For instance, Bible says in about several people's life, uh, Genesis 5, 22, Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years and had many sons and daughters. And then he walked faithfully with God and then he was no more and because God took him away. And also Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. And then he walked with God. In Genesis 24, 20, Abraham described that, Lord, before whom I serve, whom, before whom I have walked, will send this angel with you, my servant, and make your journey a success. And Micah, Prophet Micah said this very clearly. God has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly before God. So walking with God is a common biblical picture of a faithfulness to God in the Bible. In the New Testament, you know, Jesus said the same thing. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have a light that leads you to life. And then, John, 1 John 2, 3, the one who says he resides in God owed himself to walk just as Jesus walked. Ultimately, the one who walked most faithfully with God is Jesus. And I want to tell you, today's parable is a continuation of the parables that we've seen since the Luke chapter 14, when Jesus set his heart toward Jerusalem. So in his last walk to Jerusalem, Jesus giving these several parables and today's parable, we need to understand this important context. So, here Jesus is preparing disciples eventually to their walk with God. So having said that, now let's read our text responsibly. So, uh, Luke chapter uh, 17, we'll read uh, verse 5. Okay, I will read responsibly. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Will he thank the servant 
because he did what he has told, uh, he has what, what he was told to do. So you also, when you have done everything you are told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servant, we have only done our duty. Once again, this parable is only told in the Gospel of Luke. And we will look at it into three parts. Context, confirmation, and conclusion. Okay? Context, confirmation, and conclusion. Three C. Very simple. So, what's the context? Today's parable begins with the disciples' cry. Verse 5. Apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Before we find out why they made a, such a desperate request. Some people actually think this is a very uh, ambitious request, but you will see it was not ambitious. Okay? Let me ask you everyone this question. When was the last time you cried out to God, the Lord, I need more faith to walk with you. Increase my faith for your glory. Oftentimes, don't we pray our prayer is more like, increase my salary, increase my investment, increase my health, increase my GPA, increase my influence, increase the love of my wife for me. That's my prayer. <laughs> when was last time we pray, increase my faith more than any wealth in this world? You know, what made the disciples recognize their faith is too small, and they need to have a bigger faith. For that, we need to see what Jesus called them to do earlier in verse 1 to 4. So for that, uh, let me read. Jesus said to disciples, verse 1, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins, sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. And even if they sin against you seven times in a day, seven times come back to you, saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Here Jesus gave two critical imperatives. One serious warning, and the other one is solid call. The first serious warning was not to stumble anyone. Not to stumble anyone. The word for stumble is skandalon in Greek. Skandalon, from which we have English word scandal. Scandal. Skandalize or scandal. Scandal. This word is actually a hunting term, which means to trap, to snare. It has a target and victim. Especially in verse 2, Jesus repeated a warning not to stumble, and here he specially stressed not to target and victimize who? These little ones. These little ones. Who are the little ones? These little ones means socioeconomically small, weak people like Lazarus that we saw in chapter 16. The basically poor and sick people. You know, little ones means like children. Actually, another term for the children. We are talking about socially small people. Less influence. People without voice and influence. We are talking about these people. 
We're talking about marginalized people. God doesn't want anyone to be exploited, but especially marginalized people. So Matthew 18.10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I'll tell you, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. You know, when we be little disrespect and take advantage of a weak, desperate, marginalized people, you have to remember, their angels in heaven will not be silent about us. They will talk about us. God takes the victimization of our marginalized people so seriously that Jesus says it's better to sink into the deep ocean and never surface than facing the divine justice for the poor. In the Luke's material, Luke's gospel, Jesus was usually, when he's talking about stumble, he was talking about religious manipulation and spiritual social exploitation of the Pharisees. If you remember the previous last, you know, uh, chapter 16, verse 14, looks at the Pharisees who loved money. When they heard all the Jesus teaching, they sneered at him. So don't stumble, little ones. Actually, Jesus is telling disciples, don't be like a hypocritical leaders like the Pharisees, because they use these poor people, this mass, ignorant mass, for their own gain. Instead of using their gain and whatever influence to help them, they're using them to help themselves. So that's what Jesus said, don't stumble them. And after this serious warning, then Jesus called the disciples to watch. Obviously, you have to watch. The Greek word is a prosecco. It's a really prosecco. Pro-echo, prosecco. That means, watch means repeatedly echo yourself. And then Jesus gives a second imperative. That is, the first one is about stumbling. Second one is what to do with the people who sin. And if your brother and sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. And when they repent, even if they ask forgiveness seven times a day, forgive them seven times a day. Here we need to duly note the shape of a Christian love calls us to rebuke other Christians when they sin. This is a hard call, unpleasant duty of love. Definitely people like me who likes to have an easy love, this is a very uncomfortable. You know, we, and then I feel, who am I to, you know, rebuke? I'm a sinner too, I understand, you know. But why do we rebuke the mistaken brother or sister? Sin is like a virus. If we condone sin in the name of individual rights on privacy or spirit, you know, theological generation, we are all sinners. You know, it will do more harm to the perpetrator and believing community. Our commentator says, what brothers and sisters do is not their business alone, but affects the community. Responsible love must both give and receive your rebuke. This responsible love is possible because of a promise of a forgiveness. So Jesus said, rebuke somebody but he also balanced it. But when they repent, restore them quickly and uh, persistently. So it goes to two hands. 
You know, we have to speak the truth in love and we have to extend the love of restoring. It goes together. And they actually, Jesus said, use the term the brother and sister. We're talking about not an immediate family. We're talking about, you know, immediate family plus the believing community here. And daily, in a day, that means this, this, this kind of attitude of making each other accountable and restore, praying for one another and restoring one another is a daily practice and habitual attitude. Once again, I think this is all makes sense when you really join the house church. If you don't join house church, you don't understand this. It's nothing but just a euphemism in the Bible. Oh yeah, we need to, you know, whatever. Do the holy community. In, in, in. If you want to really make a church a holy, transparent community of Jesus, then we need to rebuke and restore. And that's why Jesus put the word, watch yourself between these two very difficult calling. You know, don't stumble and then rebuke and restore the sinner. And no wonder the disciples upon hearing these commands of Jesus, they cry out to Jesus, increase our faith. Literally means add our faith, add our faith. They simply said, my faith is too small. I can't do this, Jesus, help us. And here Luke used the word apostles. Actually, people who asked this was not just disciples, apostles. Increase our faith, meaning that the leading disciples at this moment, they all felt a burden of a Christian leadership in the Lord's community. They felt, Jesus, this is a burden that you want us to carry, but I'm so weak to lift this burden. Give me the spiritual muscle, the faith to lift this one up. And I must confess, the one duty that I like the least as a pastor is uh, correcting somebody. Oh, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, I run away from correcting somebody. I'd rather be corrected. And a few times, when there's a case of a correction, I, I, just, I do self-examination. If I had done this, they would not do this. It's my mistake. I'm more like, a, I want to rebuke myself rather than rebuke somebody. But as a pastor, I know it is God's call. God will make me accountable or the reflection of the duty. If I don't correct you. Because I correct my children every day, you know. Because that's a parental duty. And also, I love to correct them. <laughs> I love them and I love to correct them. Okay, two things. Okay. And uh, once again, Christian love is never sentimental. It's steeped in truth. And the truth in God is a good thing because ultimately God is love. And God doesn't rebuke us to punish us but to make us grow. So there is a hope. Christian, you know, rebuking is not a punitive. It's always a restorative, you know, it's a redemptive. And uh, I want to say this. Most of you respect me. I say most because I don't know everybody. Most of you, I assume that you respect me and that you will give, uh, you know, benefit of doubt when I point out something in your life to change. Would you extend the same trust and obedience to your house church shepherds? I must tell you, 
Forest is not about the single pastor. Forest is about the multiple pastors. Vision of our church is to be a good ship to Jesus and good shepherds to others. And it is my prayer that every single one of our members become eventually shepherds of a house church. So, you know, this time you didn't step up to be a house church shepherd. You just, you know, gave yourself an extension. Sooner or later, I expect everybody to be house church shepherds one way or another. In the meantime, whoever your current house church shepherd, when they really, you know, have a, some difficult talk with you, give them a benefit of doubt, and then make them their serving joyful, not burdensome. That's the way that God will bless you. So, this is a context. This is a disciples' a desperate cry, cry. Increase our faith, Lord. And upon this cry and confession, Jesus gave them a confirmation and comfort. That is the verse 6. Jesus replied, If you have a faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to a mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. In order to understand this uh, Jesus' word, we need to know a little bit about Greek language. Greek language has uh, actually four conditional clauses. But uh, largely speaking, there are only two. The first one, if, if means a conditional, conditional clause, those that express a condition contrary to fact. It's like, if I were you, I would not date that loser. I'm sorry. You know, kind of, if I were you, you know, I cannot be you, you know. Uh, so one good example would be John 5, uh, 16. Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you'd also believe me, because he wrote about me. Jesus was telling Pharisees, you don't really believe Moses. That's why you don't believe me. So it's a contrary to the fact. The other conditional clause in Greek expressed a condition according to the fact. And uh, the uh, example will be uh, Luke 4.3. In the temptation, the devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. Satan clearly know who Jesus was. There was no doubt in his mind that he is the Son of God. So when he said, if you are the Son of God, he was not doubting or contrary to the fact. He was saying that, since you are the Son of God, do this and help yourself with your supernatural power. So today's verse 6, guess which conditional clause? The first one contrary to the fact or consistent with the fact? This is a second case, consistent with the fact. So you can translate that if you have a, a face as a little as a mustard seed, that word if you, you can change the since. Since you have face as small as a mustard seed, you can do a great thing such as a replanting a tree from, from, from the land into the sea. This is a confirmation and a comfort. This is an amazing promise. Here Jesus tells us faith is not a matter of a size, but a matter of a source. Faith is not a matter of a size, but a matter of a source. Even if your faith looks so small like uh, the smallest seed in Palestine at the time was the uh, mustard seed, barely you know, visible. But the, the smallest faith in Almighty God, 
will be will do a surprising transformation. That's what Jesus is saying here. I like the Luke's imagery here about transplanting tree better than the other gospels. In Matthew and Mark, you know, Mount, you know, they said that if you have a mustard seed faith, you can move the mountain. Okay, maybe in Texas I like that faith. I want to bring the mountain to Dallas. But instead of moving a mountain, Luke says faith does amazing transformation, things like uh, transplanting a tree. I think it's more biblical. Because trees are often a symbol of, symbol of a life in the Bible. So Psalm 1-3, blessed is a person. It's like a tree planted by streams of water, and which yields its fruit in season, and those who lift us now wither, and whatever they do, prosper. By the way, the, so when Jesus said, you, with a faith in God, you can command a tree to be transplanted from the land to the sea. Here, by the way, sea is not talking about salty ocean. You know, he's using the sea as a very positive you know, sentence here. And the sea here is, means a large quantity of water. You know, Jewish people, they don't, they don't go to the beach. They don't hang out in the beach, unlike to, you know, us. You know, they're, they're shepherds, they're land people. They don't know how to swim. They, I mean, they barely swim to maybe save the ship, you know? So when Jesus is talking about sea here, we're talking about Sea of Galilee, the, the, the unlimited source of, uh, you know, uh, 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 nourishment. Now, this image of a transplanted tree symbolizes a life of a Christian. You know, before receiving Christ into my heart as my Savior and the Lord, I used to, I, we, we, were, we were planted in the soils of this world. And then we received a worldly nourishment, such as a worldly dreams, temporal values, and materialistic goods. That's what we raised for. Study hard. Make, you know, go to great school. Get a great job. Make a killing. Go to exotic vacation. So forth. Or leave, you know, drive fancy car. All this. But after I receive Christ, I'm transplanted in the eternal soil of God's kingdom. And there we are nourished by God's eternal values and holy dreams. And the, unlike the limited soil of the world, God's soil is unlimited, once again, just like seed. I'm no longer after my self-gratification and vain glory, but I'm convicted with loving others as myself because Christ's love in me. You know, Mother Teresa once said, we cannot do great things on the earth, but only small things with a great love. Do you like that statement? We cannot do great things on this earth, but only small things with a great love. <coughs> my mustard seed in, seed in faith in Almighty God enables me to render merciful, gracious love to those around me. You don't know me, but without Jesus, we would not met. <laughs> Sorry. Without Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, not many of you be my friend. You're not that good or useful to me. But thank God, I'm so honored to be your friend and brother and uh, even pastor because of Jesus. 
because Jesus nourished my, my, my nature. I got a new nature through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Now, up to here is a basically you know, introduction to our parable. So let me bring to our parable. So this is the main point once again. After this great confirmation of hope, once again Jesus returned to important caution and critical instruction. That's today's parable. Today's parable is more like a, a final bookend of Jesus' teaching. So let me read one more time. Jesus, after Jesus said, don't be so you know, stressed out about the faith. Eventually, you will do everything that I just commanded you. It will happen, and then it will happen, right? And meantime, and then after saying that, that you know, Jesus doesn't want disciples to be you know, complacent and cocky, and then Jesus throw another caution. That's the this parable of an unworthy servant. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after sheep. Will he say to the servant, the master will say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat. When he rather say, prepare my supper and get yourself ready and wait on me until I, while I eat and drink. And after that, you may eat and drink. Will the master thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duties. You know, this parable talks about a slave in a humble household in Palestine. In the rich person's house, the field work and domestic work are usually done by two different groups of servants. But in this household, same guy, same slave is doing two different works, right? It means the master must be not a man of much means. Sort of a, just a doing okay, barely. But regardless of his wealth, master is master and slave is a slave. A master command and slave obeys. That's the rule of the uh, society. And today, the Jesus said, there is a little, uh, there, there, is, there can be a little uh, confusion about this master is a slave in a mentality because he did a double duty, right? I think that's something we need to pay attention to. You know, this slave did not only one thing, but, you know, he did one thing, and when he came home, he, he's, he was doing another thing, double duty. And because you do the double duty, don't expect extra commendation. That's what Jesus is saying here. And I think it's a very true in spiritual life, or you know, just a general life. Whenever I do extra things for other people, I feel, <laughs> where's appreciation? Hello, where is appreciation? You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a very, I become a very self-aware. You know how good I am to you. You know what, you know. You know how lucky you are. You know, this kind of, this double duty kind of create this sense of self-importance, self-entitlement, you know, self-congratulation. You name all the, all the, you know, negative selves. It comes out of self-righteousness that comes from double duty. And especially, I believe here Jesus talking about Pharisees again. You know the problem of Pharisee? 
before human eyes, they serve God more or doubly than others. They fasted twice a, twice a week. They kept all the law. They kept all the off. They, they gave all the you know, offerings. They did all the double duties. For what? To get social recognition. To get something else. In the process, they make a God, serving God as a mean to an end. That's idolatry. You know, for Christian, serving God itself is an honor and privilege and reward. I think that's why Jesus gave this parable of a duty today. You know, invitation to serve and work with the Lord is the greatest glory. Servant of, being a servant of God is the greatest honor and the greatest privilege. You know, I don't know, whenever you look back your past and reflect on the, you know, the, the, the very joyful, I mean, meaningful moment, what was the you know, common ingredient on that? I can tell you one thing in my life, sacrifice. Things that I sacrifice, self-sacrifice, and then, you know, I, those things make me, those events make me feel good. You know, things that are about this, a great experience, whatever. Yeah, I learn every time, you know. Whenever we see the pictures or something in the TV, and I told Jamie that, you know, we've been there, and she said, when? You know? <laughs> I mean, all these wonderful restaurants and the places I took my family, they don't remember. But you know why? Because there's no self-sacrifice. I'm the one who sacrificed. <laughs> so I remember, but they don't remember. You know? And uh, we need to know what is our reward. Our reward is the Lord himself working with Jesus, walking with him. Actually, he called me and using me. That is a reward and privilege. Let me illustrate this. This March Madness, uh, by the way, I have to show you my socks. Uh, Vivian gave me these socks, or Hans family, you know, because, and then it has a basketball. So I'm wearing this in the honor of a March Madness and the, this duty. You know, what is the goal of every player in the March Madness? They simply want to play one more game. They don't mind double duty. They don't want to go home. They don't say, oh, how come we have to play next weekend again? We're already playing for three weekends in a row. Nobody complains. We want to play one more game than anybody. And Texas Tech, us, somehow in our church, we don't have any Red Raiders. We don't have, a, okay. Anyway, go Big 12, anyway. Destroy the Duke, or whoever comes up. I'm rooting for the Texas Tech. You know, every player, every team in March Madness, they're trying to play one more game. They, for them, playing a one more game is not a double duty. It's a great honor. I want to speak about duty a little bit. You know the origin of the etymological, the word origin of duty? It came from the uh, 14th century Anglo-French word I'll just allow me to pronounce it, dute. And that came from the old French word du, automatically, I mean, simply means due, old, proper, and just. 
It actually came from the uh, Latin, common Latin called the debutus. And uh, you know, Spanish, deber, obligation, that's from the debutus. So deb is something we owe, something we owe. Duty, before, the reason you and I have, you know, Jesus talking about duty, he was actually, duty, duty is based on privilege. You don't have a duty unless you received, you know, privilege. Duty means you owe something. Somebody gave you something good that now you owe back. So let's talk about even duty of, you know, being a citizen of America. You know, in this world, there are 7.7 billion, according to 2018 population data. And out of 7.7 billion people, how many lives in America? Roughly 340 million. That's about 4.4% of the world population. The fact that you and I, a US citizen, we are that one of the 4.4%, you know, those of you applying to college, 4.4% acceptance rate is the highest. Stanford, 5.1%, Harvard, 6%, Yale, 6.3%, Princeton, 7%. What have you done to be accepted into America as a citizen? Simply, you've been, by grace of God, you're born in this country. This is, this is why duty, citizen, citizen duty is important. During this uh, uh, spring break, we went to a, a family visit slash college tour in East Coast. And uh, we went to uh, New Haven, and there was a Yale University. And Yale University, I saw this a very interesting uh, uh, Yale alum, guy named Nathan Hale. And they built a statue in the school, in the, the old quad. And Nathan Hale was a captain in George Washington's army in 1776. And during the Revolution War, he volunteered to uh, collect information on British forces stationed in Long Island. And uh, on his first and the only recon mission, he must be not a good spy. He was caught and then, <laughs> he was caught and then executed. But this 20, so he died at the age of 21. Do you know he was the last word? Nathan Hale's last word was, I regret I have but one life to lose for my country. I regret that I have but only one life to lose for my country. When he talks, when he talks about country, United States of America is barely recognized. This is just an idea, not even, you know, barely surviving, but he loved the United States, the idea of America. That he said, I wish I want to give more. I'm sorry that I can give only one life, my life. His statue was so inspiring that the, uh, guess where? There's uh, uh, several other places have a statue, including Langley, Virginia, CI main campus. And uh, you don't see that in the picture clearly, but if you get closer, his uh, shoe here is a shining. Because funny thing is that all the secular students at Yale, he became a, a patron saint of a Yale University that everybody who goes before important job interview, they come before him and for the 
rob, they rob, they, I mean, for the for lock, they 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 rob his, uh, you know, uh, uh, shoes and bless me, Nathan Hale, kind of thing. And so students want final exams and whatever important event, you know, they do that. But I'm so, when I heard that story, I was so challenged by this American patriot, young patriot's love for his country. Because America is a great country, but nothing is greater than kingdom of God. I'm a member of a lasting and most glorious winning team in eternity. Our, who won the last year NCAA? Joshua, who won last year NCAA? See, you don't remember, right? Who remembers last year? Who is the champion of uh, last year NCAA? Villanova. Oh, Villanova, okay. I, yeah, must be, okay. We don't even remember last year's champion. Every glory in this world, victory in this world, it's nothing but a fleeting, vain glory. Whereas the glory of Jesus will grow more and more. In fact, that you and I are part of that glory. Isn't that awesome? You know, people, they will, you know, for me, when I get to heaven, seriously, what reward? Being in heaven, just walking with Jesus itself is in heaven. And especially, when I help the people that I help to find Jesus or know Jesus better, if they're in heaven, they are my eternal reward. When we get together, we just talked about how we helped each other. That is a glory of glory. What else? You know, Jesus said, I want to balance. In other texts, Jesus said, there is a reward. So let me read that text and then I'll, I'll, I'll close. Mark 10, 29 and 31, Jesus said, Truly I'll tell you, no one who has left a home, brothers and sisters and mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers and sisters, mothers, children and fields, slash, along with uh, persecution, end of slash, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first shall be the last and the last shall be the first. You know, all the Greek texts, actually, it said the, uh, they put the homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields along with the persecution as a parenthesis. That means it's a later addition. The, or, the earlier text, it basically said, whoever you know, sacrificed God will never fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present world and the age to come eternal world. God will reward those who sacrifice him and obey him sacrificially. Some of us will receive here, some of us will receive in the future. Now, unlike the worldly reward, our reward, I think, is internal joy and also eternal because it's about God. One of a great Christian missionary in the past is a guy named C.T. Studd. Han Minor, you know, Han Minor. C.T. Studd was a 
uh, is a graduate of uh, Cambridge University, and he was a famous uh, cricket player, internationally famous, you know, more like a British version of a baseball cricket player. And he was also very, you know, from very affluent family. He served China, India, and at the end he served uh, Sudan, you know, uh, Africa, and he died. His life is nothing but a sacrifice. But you know what he said at the end of his life? He said, if Jesus is God and he died for me, whatever I do, I cannot call it sacrifice. That's what he said. I think it's the same thing for all of us. Serving God is, is more than, is an honorable duty. It posits that we already have got that the call of Jesus to serve him, walk with him, is a great honor. Hallelujah. So at Forest, I hope you're excited when we call you to serve because it's not a double duty we're asking, extra mile to go, but it is a double privilege. We're going to sing a song. This song is a very simple uh, prayer. Show me your ways. So worship team, please come. And I hope we're going to sing this like uh, three, four times, and by the last time, that I hope you can memorize. Can I have the words on this song? Song goes like this. Show me your ways that I may walk with you. Show me your ways I put my hope in you. The cry of my heart is to love you more, to live with touch of your hand, stronger each day. Show me your way. Simple, very simple song. Show me your way. You know, Jesus is the way. And the way of God is different from our ways. It requires a trust and obedience because Jesus' way is a narrow way. But good news is that we never walk that narrow way alone. You know, when Jesus said to the disciples, I'm sending you, it's like sending like a sheep among the midst of a wolf. What kind of crazy shepherd send a sheep among the wolf? Pack of a wolf, right? You know what? Just like when I send our kids to whatever the college world, our prayer, our heart goes with them. Wherever Jesus sends us, Matthew 28, Jesus very clearly, go rest of the world and make a disciple in my name. Jesus said, lo and behold, I'm with you always. Show me a way. That means Jesus is near us and he will show us his way. Actually, he will grab our hands. He will walk with us and show us way. And cry on my heart is to love you more each day, stronger. May we take his love more deeply, more joyfully, and uh, our cry is nothing but serve him stronger each day. Let's all stand, and uh, let me pray, and then we'll sing this prayer.